Very nice. Well, with the change in order of service, I get the privilege of dismissing the children to Children's Church. So if you're three to eight years old, Jeff, Neal, and Judy, you can follow them. They'll be handling Children's Church today, while the rest of us turn to Jonah. Turn to Jonah, the last part of chapter one. Jonah chapter 1, our uh, text today is verses 15 through 17. And uh, just for a little review, in case you haven't been with us recently, um, we had learned that the sailors on this ship uh, who were with Jonah were in a perilous situation. It was perilous, dangerous, nothing they could do would calm the storm, Calling out to their diversity of false gods, that was fruitless in verse 5. Hurling their cargo overboard to try and lighten the ship and make it lighter in the water so they'd float up since they were sinking, uh, that was ineffective. Even relying on their own efforts to row to shore, completely futile. Completely futile. Everything they did to try to save themselves failed. And to reemphasize this to them, to the sailors, at each turn that they tried something new, the storm, God made it grow stormier. He said, you're not going to do it your way. And two applications that we have learned, which transfer today to us, are that every person whom God sets on their hearts to be saved, each person must abandon this notion that there are other gods out there that can save you. Uh... All genuine Christians reject this uh, religious pluralism, also universalism. Uh, Pluralism is this idea that there are are just many paths to God or many gods. Uh, In response to that, by spiritual rebirth, by the Holy Spirit of God, Christians have come to the conclusion, the correct conclusion, that there aren't multiple paths to God. Or, or, or you can't get there through a variety of world religions. There's one narrow path, Jesus called it, uh, to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Right? John 14, 6. And also in John 10, 9, Jesus says this, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. So Christians recognize that Scripture affirms consistently in numerous locations that only God's precious Son, Jesus Christ, only He died on the cross bearing the shame, the penalty for sins. Him alone, in Christ alone. And then three days later, of course, He rose from the grave. Muhammad didn't do that for you. Never offered to do that for you. Buddha did not do that for you. Did not say that he did that for you. Actually, those religions deny that Christ did that for you. It's a complete contrast. Universalism, uh, by comparison, is, a, is an idea or a notion that yes, Christ may have died for our sins, but in the end, God will apply that cleansing blood to everybody so that everybody's saved, just universally. That's, that's universalism. And... Uh, These people can't imagine that God would actually ever send anyone to hell. They reject that teaching teaching, that sinners will, because of their own sin, having separated themselves from God, because God is holy, we are not, they reject that because of sin, 
anyone will be condemned. That's universalism. Again, using himself as an illustration, as a type of doorway, Jesus cautions in Matthew 7.13, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. The gate, or, or door, is very narrow. About the width of the shoulders of one man, Jesus Christ. That's how narrow it is. And, and most don't find it. Most, Jesus said, follow the broad road to destruction. And he immediately adds in that same passage again, Matthew 7, if you want to look later, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. Beware of them. The false teachers are the wolves that Jesus says wear sheep's clothing. That means they dress up like Christians. And the reason I bring this up is now we're entering the holiday season. Christians are celebrating Christmas uh, all the decoration, we celebrate the Savior's birth. Unfortunately, it's a fact that, that many, not all, many denominations in America, um, they identify themselves as Christian, actually believe and teach pluralism, that there are many ways to heaven, or universalism, that in the end it really doesn't matter if you put your faith in Christ, everyone's going to get saved in the end anyhow because God is so loving that he would never condemn anyone. Uh, if you're like me, you have family members that are caught up in this. And uh, we simply need to know this holiday season that the sailors on Jonah's ship discovered that there are not multiple gods who could save them. We have learned that in our text. Uh, the second application we learned quite briefly is you can't work your way to salvation. You can't work your way there. Any sinner who wants to make restitution for their sins, uh, they must abandon works for salvation. Instead, we must come to God on God's term by grace, through faith, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. No one's going to boast before God and say, I did this. Prior to Christian salvation, man accomplishes no good works. No good works meant to praise God. All works before becoming a Christian are meant to bring or direct praise towards the individual, towards self. And if God would have permitted these sailors to successfully row themselves towards shore, who would they be crediting? They'd be crediting at just what a great job they did. Boy, we really did that. We were in peril, guys. We saved ourselves. God doesn't allow that to happen. He desires that all glory for salvation and saving anyone goes to God, not to us. And this summarizes this process we've observed thus far in Jonah in chapter 1. Then let us read our text passage together. I'm going to back up to verse 13 and start from there to review where the men for the first time called out and prayed to Yahweh by name, plead with him not to let them perish, and thus respond in faith by doing exactly what the prophet Jonah had told them to do. Verse 13, it says that the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. For the sea was becoming even stormier against them, then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. These men cried out to the Lord. The Lord listened. And if your heart is troubled today or if you're in despair and, and, and this holiday season has is, is, is got you down, you're struggling, you don't know what to do, there's nothing more that I want you to take away from the message today is that God is listening, folks. We need to cry out to the Lord. And, and Psalm 145 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desires of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. So if that's you today, heed Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God promises that. For we Christians, we serve the living God. Not some false God that can't answer. Uh, we serve the living God that can rescue us from perishing. So folks, don't, don't, don't neglect so great a salvation. Don't let the raging storms of life, finances, health problems, relationships that are broken, don't let them prevent you from coming to Christ. Don't let temporary situations distract you from what is urgent today. That is, to be saved. And these sailors cried out. They, they took this leap of faith that Jonah had, had told them to do. And it says in verse 15 that they, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Now think about that for a minute. We just, we just read through that. Well, they hurled him into the sea, the sea stopped raging. Imagine uh, the turmoil of a storm. Tossing the boat, the waves crashing on the boat nearly breaking the boat up and enduring this, trying to, to find some solution, all of a sudden, calm. Would that scare you? Would that freak you out? It would me. And, and, and that's what happened here. It put the fear of God in them. They experienced exactly what Jonah had promised them back in verse 12. He said, you do this, the sea will become calm. And God was in control the entire time. He had not lost control. God was listening the entire time. And he was waiting for them to cry out. So folks, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Think back to when the disciples were with Jesus in a boat. About to perish, nonetheless. And it's interesting that all three of the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contain this story and, and they paint together this complete picture of Christ. That, that's what those three Gospels do. They, they add a little bit of detail, the other two don't. Each one of them in themselves. And you bring them together, and it, it paints a complete picture of, of, of Christ. And the account in Mark goes like this. It says, And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus got up and he rebuked the wind and he told the wind, Hush, be still. 
And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Sound familiar? Perfectly calm. And Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? We know the answer to that question. Jesus is the Son of God. The very God that Jonah informed these sailors had created the sea and the dry land. The very same God. And John 1.3 assures us concerning the Word who became flesh, that is Christ, Gospel of John chapter 1, that all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. The disciples had experienced the same thing as these sailors because they encountered the same God as these sailors in Jonah. Identical. The storm also suddenly ceased. And initially the disciples, they were very much afraid, actually in awe. Just in awe of what God can do and what Jesus Christ did as he stood there and calmed the waves. And they feared. And Jesus says this results from a lack of faith. But those who have faith need not fear. And once we come to the understanding that God is in control of every circumstance, every wave, every breaker that comes over our life, every trouble, every problem, every circumstance, every health concern, God is in control. And we need not fear. Our response shouldn't be fear. Our response should be what the sailor's response was, and that is sacrifice. They sacrificed in in verse 16. An important observation that that needs to be noted here, God is worthy of sacrifice simply because he saved him. Simply because the sailors are saved, God is worthy. Save them from perishing. Upon salvation, God didn't promise us a rose garden. He did not. God saved the sailors and us from perishing. The sailors still had their circumstances to deal with. They had just come through a severe storm. Verse 4 implies that their ship was damaged. They had problems. We can expect the sails were probably shredded. There probably were structural issues to this boat that they would have to come into harbor and fix. So although they were saved, there was going to be a period of restoration to their vessel. That wasn't going to be immediate. There was going to be hard work ahead. Think about, how about the, the cargo that they tossed overboard during the storm? You think they're going to have some explaining to do? Somebody else owned that cargo. It didn't belong to these sailors. They were paid to transport that cargo. Think there's going to be some blame? Was the storm really that bad? There aren't storms in that region that time of year. We know that. Angry company, financial loss, time lost. We can't expect that though they're saved from perishing, it's not the end of their problems. They're going to continue to struggle through problems. Challenges lying ahead. But that that really didn't matter that much to them right now. Verse 16 says their response, they're going to offer sacrifice. They're going to make vows to God because He saved them. Isn't that pretty standard today? Think about how this relates to us today. Uh, People profess faith in Jesus. 
You see, you know, I'm going to be a Christian now and I'm going to devote myself and my wealth to God. I'm going to give it all to Him. Praise to the Lord. Oftentimes, we'll get down on our knees. Maybe at home, you'd be alone somewhere laying over the couch. I heard a lot about couches today. <laughs> Maybe a recliner, whatever it is. And, and on your knees, you, you said, you, in the joy of your salvation, you told Jesus, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. I love you. How are you doing for him? How's that working out? Do you remember that first uh, pledge? Are you telling others about them? Are you investing time? Are you giving generously for the usefulness of the kingdom of Christ? Are you loving others? Are we, are we watching our language? Are we trying to maintain purity? Are we keeping our pledge? How is it working? And folks, when we think back about what we've told God we will do, myself included, we need God's grace every day. Every single day, we have failed Him. Yet His grace is more than abundant. We repeat the cycle. Oh Lord, just get me out of this situation right now and I I vow this time, I'm going to do it all for you, Lord. Then we fail again. This is probably one reason that Jesus advises Christians, you know, don't make vows. Don't make vows. Notice... Jesus doesn't say don't sacrifice for the kingdom. In, in Matthew 5.33, Jesus warns his disciples, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make any oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement simply be, yes, yes, or no, no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond these, Jesus said, is evil. He's trying to protect us. Trying to protect us. And these sailors, they not only sacrificed, they made vows... It's a historical account of what they did. Uh, the passage doesn't reveal whether or not it was a wise vow or an unwise vow or what it was to do. Um, we should recognize a vow by nature implies a commitment to something future that is in a large part unknowable, the future, for most of us anyhow. Pretty much everyone here. We don't know what the future holds, especially the distant future. And the reason people very often, when you think about it, try to get us to make a vow... They want us to vow something or give our word, we would say. It's because the information for making a wise decision isn't all available yet. Would you just give me your word? Will you pledge your loyalty today? How often do we fall into that? And it's true that vows were permitted in the Old Testament, under the law, for religious purposes especially. Jesus advises Christians to avoid making vows at least where full disclosure is not yet understood, the implications. And there are numerous reasons to avoid them. We're not omniscient. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know the future or circumstances, whether they'll permit us us to fulfill what we have vowed. Our fallen nature makes us prone to errors in judgment. All of us. 
errors in judgment that can cause us to make vows foolishly. Who is an Old Testament poster child for that one? From Judges. Chapter 11. Jephthah. Rash vow. Not thinking it through. Not knowing what the future would hold. He's a poster child for that in Judges 11. Third, vows by nature, they're presumptive to a sense. Most vows. We'll talk about wedding vows and other things at another date. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So James suggests it's more advisable to say, You know, if the Lord wills, I will do this or I will do that. Or better yet, we can just follow Jesus' advice. He says, just simply let your answer be yes or no. Yes or no. Um, Because anything beyond that, Jesus said, is evil. So he implies our vow becomes evil when we swear upon something by making a vow presumptuously. Just presuming. And interestingly, do you know how James categorizes that same presumption of boasting of tomorrow? In In that James 4? Use the identical Greek term as Jesus did. He says it's evil to just presume upon tomorrow. So, so I hope these sailors didn't pledge something they couldn't fulfill. We'll never, we won't know until we possibly see them. I prefer Jesus' advice, really. This is the point here. It's very much easier to give a yes or a no. To the best of your ability, wait until you have enough information to give an affirmative yes or no. Until then, you, you can... Uh, you, you really don't know what's going to happen. You really don't. I run into this a lot. I want people, to give, people want me to give a yes or a no on something, personally, ministry, otherwise. I've found it takes courage to say no. Because we all want to be people pleasers, don't we? Everybody wants to please everybody. We want to go along. By nature, we want to go along because we want to avoid friction. Let's face it, we're a people-pleaser society. Politicians will tell people whatever they want. How often does that change when the circumstances change? We all fall into this, pastors. Mothers and fathers tell their children, make a promise to them. Though it takes strength to say no, it's much better than saying yes and then backing out. Much better. And uh, it affects the credibility of our business, our ministry, our our reputation to our children. Yes be yes, no be no. Anyhow, long story short, if you've broken a vow, most of us here probably have. Come early to Christ, make a vow to God. Most of us probably have uh, broken a vow. Here's the thing to remember. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. All you have to do is admit it to God, confess it, and not repeat it. Say, Lord, I failed. And people say, say, I need to begin anew. Well, then begin anew. Sound too easy? Grace is that easy, folks. Begin anew. Start anew. Where are we? Something about something we've been waiting for. Something about a really big fish. You know, since childhood, 
since childhood, most of us, probably all of us, have been told that Jonah is all about a man getting swallowed by a really big fish. That's what it's about. That's what we learn in Sunday school. Not so much should we learn about God's sovereignty over human events or creation. Not even how Jonah is an Old Testament illustration of Christ and the resurrection, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what Jesus says, by the way, in our scripture reading today in, in Matthew 12. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as, so will. But instead of teaching about God's sovereignty, Nineveh's repentance, Christ's resurrection, we usually assign the children to color pictures like this. There he is. That is an actual photo that Jonah took while he was in there with a GoPro camera. You've got the raft that the creature must have swallowed so he was able to build himself a place to write. That, was, that must be a big fish. There's another angle. There we go from the outside. He's got a cook stove in there. He's kind of relaxed and got a smile on his face. Fish isn't sure whether he likes what's going on or not. That's what we teach. We do the same thing for Noah. You realize that? Um, Noah, the flood, the ark. We have them color pictures that are ridiculous. Thank you. Um, But they're historical events, folks. These were real historical events. And we need to treat it as such when we're teaching our children. Jonah is historical. It's factual. It's not a myth or a legend. And the historicity of Jonah, it's one reason I don't like the translation in the NASB that I normally use for reading. They say sea monster. You know, it makes it sound really fairy tale-ish type of stuff. Of course, it was translated before we had Monsters, Inc., right? Loch Ness Monster. Um, it's a sea monster. No, it's not a sea monster. It was a creature. It was a sea creature. The ESV, the New King James, translates Jesus' statement in Matthew better as a great fish. It was one great fish. It wasn't a cartoonish fish. It was a real fish. And the Greek term here, katos, it's a general Greek term that simply implies a huge fish. No species is suggested by Christ or in Jonah. It's the same in the Hebrew term, Jonah 1.17. The word is dog. In chapter 2, verse 1, which we'll see next week, the related Hebrew word is dogah. And, and, and these two are they're general terms that were used to des- describe the creatures, the fish of the sea, in the creation account in Genesis. They were real creatures. This probably wasn't a special one-time species created by God at the moment, though you'll hear that. God created a special particular fish for this. Probably not. It was just a really great fish. And uh, I know what some will say. You run into this. The King James says that it's a whale. And uh, all good Christians know that Jesus spoke in King James English. Of course he did not. Jesus didn't. Jesus primarily spoke a dialect of Aramaic. And the New Testament was originally written in Greek. 
And now the Bible's been translated into thousands of modern languages. Thousands of them. And nowhere in Scripture are we told to anticipate that in 1,600 years from Scripture, the Bible will be translated into an English version and then frozen in time. We're never told that. And the Bible... Um, is never said that it's static in that way in one particular language. That idea is inaccurate. And it's been used to cause division in churches and division among Christians. And I'm just going to ta- camp here for a moment. I got a contact here, a very odd contact about three months ago from someone outside our congregation who wanted to come inside our congregation and uh, educate us. But I'm going to give a very brief explanation of these translations into the common language. Old Testament was written in Hebrew originally, most of it except for a small portion of Daniel and Aramaic. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. The dominant language of Rome later became Latin, probably familiar with that, and for centuries. Even after the language changed later to English, the scriptures remained only in Latin. And they were reserved primarily for clergy who were educated in Latin. It wasn't given to the common folks. It wasn't permitted to be translated into the common language. So men shed their blood and died. Wycliffe, Tyndale gave their lives so that the scriptures could be translated into the common English language of that day. They were killed, folks, to make the Bible available so that we could read it and know Jesus Christ for ourselves. Then Luther instigated what we know as the Reformation. The floodgates broke open. A priest, a Catholic priest, by by the way, Erasmus, created uh, what we know of as the Textus Receptus. And as the result of that, it was a Greek translation, and result primarily the Reformation, the Bible was translated into every common language. Luther translated it into German. The other reformers translated it into their language. Because men risked their lives and died. It can be translated into the common language. Have we learned anything? Fortunately, we have godly men MacArthur, Swindoll, Begg, Al Mohler, others, who know better. It is something that can become a divisive thing among Christians. The Bible is available in a common language. The King James translators assumed that if it was a huge fish, which it was, it was probably a whale. They translated it whale. According to the Institute of Creation Research, which we know quite well, it could have been a large species of shark, that could have swallowed him. Or since Jonah was written so long ago, possibly a now extinct sea creature, we don't know. And and the Bible doesn't take the step of specifying why, because the story of Jonah is not about a whale. It's not about a big fish. It's not about a monster. It's about God. And verse 17 assures us that God appointed this fish, not having just control of the seas, but of all of his creatures, 
And God appointed, he ordained, he commanded the fish to go and swallow up Jonah. The fish had to do it. And God made the fish swallow Jonah. He was inside that fish for three days and three nights. So a really good long time. A good long time. And for centuries, you and I and everybody else has been trying to figure out how can, how could have Jonah survived underwater in the belly of the fish for so long. Personally, I'm not confident that he did survive. Next week, we're going to look at Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. And it says there in verse 3 that the current engulfed him. It towed him down. Verse 5 says, The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head, Jonah says. Verse 6, I descended to the roots of the mountains. And of course, this is poetic language. But it's also descriptive of Jonah's experience. He descended to the deepest parts of the sea, down to where the weeds are, he is saying. And you tell me, how does a man who gets sucked down to the bottom of the sea in that much water, at least to the verge of drowning and death, we know, from chapter 2, and then to get swallowed by a fish where there's no oxygen in the stomach, probably acid, and breathe and survive for the better part of three days. Do we think there's like an oxygen tank down there or something? No, there wasn't. And even if it was a mammal, such as a whale, when a mammal breathes, the oxygen goes where? Into the lungs, not into the stomach. How would you survive three days? All commentaries I have researched that are credible just leave this inconclusive. We don't know. We don't know. So you might disagree. My impression is that, that uh, Jonah died just as Lazarus and numerous others in the Bible temporarily died. God preserved his body and then resurrected Jonah shortly before God commanded the fish to spit him out. That's my impression. Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So after Jesus was crucified and his body was laid in the grave for three days and three nights, had he literally died? Yes. God have any problem with resurrecting? No. No. So since Jonah is a type of Christ, uh, which we've discovered in the Old Testament, is it at least possible Jonah died? I think so. I think so. And, and this fish simply carried his corpse for three days, and God revived Jonah. We'll talk about the timing of the prayer next week. And, and it coughed Jonah up onto dry land, it says. It implies, it implies a death, burial, and resurrection. Jonah is the Old Testament picture of what we know of as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself said so. Uh, he refers to it as a sign or a testing miracle. It's a sign. But regardless whether you think Jonah was resurrected, the literal resurrection of Christ is conclusive. It is historically factual. I will read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the Apostle Paul who writes as an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to me and more than, or excuse me, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. That means some that died. Paul, uh, Paul then says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Christ was resurrected. He is risen. He is alive. Pastor Weiler was talking this week from a class in seminary talking about every day is a resurrection. We celebrate it. Every single day we celebrate that he is risen, not just Easter. 365 days a year. And scripture assures us that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And scripture assures us, as it was in one of the songs, he is preparing to return. He's coming. And as I earlier encouraged you, that if your heart is troubled, if you're in despair, God is ready, folks. God is listening. He is waiting for you to cry out and cry to him. And next week, we're going to look at the prayer of Jonah in chapter 2, when Jonah cried out to the Lord and God answered. Folks, we're coming into a wonderful season. We're going to celebrate the traditional birth of Christ our Savior. Do not let this season pass. Don't let it pass without knowing for sure what you believe and in whom you believed in. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we continue to look into your word, Lord, and see the similarities of the man Jonah, and the dissimilarities between him and Christ, Lord, uh, we thank you for the picture of the gospel. Lord, how Jonah, just a man, failed in so many ways, yet Christ never did. That he overcame as the God-man, the very Son of God, the sin, the struggle, the brutality, Lord, that this world offers. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. Thank you for him dying for our sins. And thank you for the resurrection from the dead. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.